Welcome everyone to the How to Get the Most Out of College podcast. There's a lot of talk about where to go to college, but not nearly enough about how to go to college. And it's the everyday decisions that drive your success. I'm your host, Elliot Felix. I've been a consultant to more than 100 colleges and universities, helping them improve their student experience. And I'm the author of How to Get the Most Out of College, where I take what I've learned about how college works and make it work for you. There's so much about the college experience that students know going into it. Some of it meets their expectations. Some of it comes as, as quite a surprise. And one of the most surprising things is what everything is called, this, this hidden curriculum, the things you don't know about how college works and how to make it work for you. And so much of that starts with vocabulary. Some of that vocabulary is jargon. It's, it's tied to tradition. Some of that tradition may not even be relevant anymore. And so I'm really excited to dig into this topic of the hidden curriculum with an expert on this and, and so many other subjects. We have Lewis Newman here, who's the author of Thinking Critically in College. He's a lifelong faculty member at Carleton College, where he taught ethics and recently retired as the Dean of Academic Advising at Stanford. Welcome, Lewis. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I am really excited to dig into this. If any part of our conversation, I'm falling into the trap of referencing a hidden curriculum or hiding behind jargon, please call me out on that because I want everybody to understand this and everyone to learn from your expertise. Will do, definitely. I gave you a little bit of an intro, but give us a little sense of how you got into higher ed and your experience over the last 40 years. You know, Can you do 40 years in 40 seconds? <laughs> I don't know about 40 seconds. I'll do my best. I, I feel as though I've sort of always been in higher ed. As a student, even in college and grad school, it was clear to me pretty early on that I loved teaching and I wanted to be a faculty member someday. And so I think uh, I just kind of stayed on that trajectory really from the beginning. Went to the University of Minnesota as an undergraduate, did some graduate work in other places, did my PhD at Brown and was fortunate when I finished to get a position at Carleton College in 1983, straight out of grad school and loved it. It's a fabulous school for any of you who may not know about it out there. Look into it. It's a fabulous liberal arts college. And I had a wonderful experience there on the faculty, where I then later in my career moved into academic administration. And from there, at a certain point in 2016, left Carleton for this administrative position at Stanford and retired from there just about a year ago. Well, congrats on the retirement. And it sounds like you've been busy since then talking about thinking critically. I have been. You know, it's interesting. I never exactly imagined I'd be writing a book on this subject. But as I say in the introduction, there was a very particular conversation with a student that triggered a lot of thinking on my part about what students needed to know about how to think critically, which we kind of assumed, we on the faculty assumed they would know or assumed they would pick up by osmosis. But in fact, they don't necessarily. And I began to think about how to provide them with a book that they could read as they started their college careers that would really tell them, this is how you think like a college student, which is actually the working title that I had of the book before the publisher had other ideas and, and changed the title to Thinking Critically in College, the Essential Handbook for Student Success. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's so important because, you know, every survey I read of skills employers are looking for, like critical thinking is always in the top five. It's, 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 yeah. So as we think critically about the hidden curriculum, I'd love to hear a story about a student learning some of these hidden aspects of higher ed that are often inaccessible to folks, you know, to make this a little more concrete. Absolutely. So one of the things that I did in my position at Stanford was to talk every summer 
with a group of first-gen students who were in what we call a summer bridge program. At Stanford, it was called the Leland Scholars Program. And I would have lunch with groups of those students. And at a certain point, just talking to them over lunch, I was talking about kind of how to think about beginning their college careers, which they would be doing that fall, and that they could go to a professor ahead of time before the class started or as the class was starting, get a copy of the syllabus, look it over, ask questions, see what the course was going to be like, how much work would there be, like what were the requirements going to be, and so forth. And as I was talking about that, I looked around the table and I realized I was getting some sort of blank stares. And so I sort of stopped mid-sentence and said, does everybody know what a syllabus is? And several of them shook their heads. And it was like, okay, let's start with what is a syllabus, right? Because in high school, you may never have had anything called a syllabus for a high school course. Yeah. And, and then I began to take it a step further. We began talking more and it became clear that when I talked about going into to the professor's office hours, students really had no idea what that meant either. They kind of assumed that when they saw something about office hours, that meant Bad. those were the times when the professor was not available. Like that right. was when they were in their office doing their work yeah. as distinct from the times when they were available to be you know, visited by students. So it became clear to me that even very basic terms that we use and throw around as if all students will know what that means, they don't necessarily. And there's no place generally where they can go to find out if they don't already know. I love that story because I'm, I'm so glad that you, you know, you're reading the room and you're seeing that people don't have familiarity with syllabus or office hours or any of these kind of tips for success, you know, that I think you were talking about them and you coach students on now. Absolutely. I'll, I'll add one more thing because you, you referred to it earlier, Elliot, which is just the lingo, like the acronyms. And I mean, all students know about SATs and yeah. of forms and all that. But you get to college and you discover there's an, a, this whole lot of lingo and slogans and abbreviations. And, you know, generally, you just have to kind of pick it up. It's like going to a foreign country and like picking up the, the terminology. And, yeah. and again, by and large, I mean, at Stanford, it was kind of a joke. There were actually administrators who maintained lists because there were so many acronyms and abbreviations for things that if you were a new person coming to campus, you would have no idea what people were talking about. And, yeah, it can be so, pretty you know, opaque. They, they circulated. And it can be really opaque. Yeah. And, they're, and they're not the same at all schools. So if you move from one school to another by chance, you know, that same terminology or the same acronym can mean something entirely different. That actually happened to me. Uh, so, you know, those are the kinds of things just on the level of what are these things called uh, yeah. that, that, that students often aren't prepared for when they get to a college campus. Yeah, I mean, I remember picking courses for my first semester at UVA and it was like you're you're looking through all these courses and you're trying to figure out the the departments and I was like what's ENWR and it you know it turns out that's English writing but it took me asking around to figure you know what 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 actually is this and there's more that where that came from so students are trying to figure out what things mean and how to use them and what they mean for them, probably even more importantly, what should they do to do that? What are some of the advice that you give students to better understand the hidden curriculum? Right. So, so this is shifting a little bit to a different element, maybe, of the hidden curriculum, but I think it's really essential for students to understand. Every college and university has a slew of rules and regulations that govern academic life and govern student life in general. Like, can you have pets in your dorm room? Probably not. 
various other rules about behavior, but also rules about the academic calendar. If you start out taking a class, can you add a class up to what point in the quarter or the, or the semester? Can you drop a class? Can you change the grading option? You decided to take the class for a letter grade and at a certain point, you're not doing as well as you hoped and you'd like to switch to taking it past no credit because you figure that way you've got a much better chance of passing or getting the grade you want or just protecting your GPA because you won't, you know, you won't have a C there, right? So there are all of these rules, rules about wait lists, rules about registration, rules about, about what we call academic progress. What GPA do you need to maintain to be in what we call good standing? And at what point do you fall below that threshold and then you're on something that usually goes by the name probation or academic notice, or again, different schools call it different things. That's part of the lingo. But just knowing what those rules and regulations are, which may be very different than they were in high school and far, far more extensive than they were in high school, it's really important because those are the rules that actually govern what you can and can't do and when. And if you know what those are, then you're in a much better place to navigate the university. So one of the first things I tell students is, Find where those rules are online. Every college or university will have a book of rules and regulations or a college catalog of some sort, which student has Student handbook posted. kind of thing. Student handbook, right? They, they appear under different titles in different places. But whatever, whatever they are and wherever they are, find them, bookmark them someplace in your browser so that you know immediately when you have a question what the rules are. And if you believe that you have some particular circumstance which might provide a reason to be exempted from that rule, you want to know what the procedure is for petitioning for an exception. Well, how would you go about doing that? How would you know what the right form is to fill out and who to give it to? Right? Those are the hidden rules that, I mean, they're not really hidden, they're there, but you just have to know what they are, know where to find them and how to navigate them. Yeah. Uh, so this so is like the ar arcane curriculum, hiding in plain sight, I guess. Absolutely. Um, but students don't even know to look for it, right? They don't even realize that those rules exist. And then they bump into them and they discover, oh, gee, I wanted to drop that course, but it's now week four. I'm not allowed to. I didn't have any excuse. I wasn't like in the hospital or anything. I yeah. just missed the deadline. That's not likely to get you an exemption anywhere, right? They're not yeah. going to make an exception for that. So you've got to know those and you've got to be on top of them. So you've mentioned enrolling in, a, in class you know, understanding the deadlines for that, for adding or dropping a class, for changing the grade status, bringing a pet or not. What else is in your kind of top five rules? Academic progress, you also mentioned. Right. But what else is in that kind of upper echelon of like must, must do's, must knows? Well, you, you want to know about things like prerequisites, right? So you want to know there are often occasions when a particular course appears in the catalog. But if you look closely, it will tell you that you can't take that course unless you have taken some other course first mm -hmm. and completed it with a successful grade, right? So that's a prerequisite. Again, that may be new for a lot of students. They may not have had any such courses in high school. So you need to be attentive to those sorts of things. And you also need to know that sometimes it will say prerequisite X course or permission of instructor. And then, you know, you need to know that there's a way to get around that prerequisite. Maybe you took something in high school or you took a summer course someplace. So you haven't taken exactly the prerequisite that's listed there, but you think you have good reason to be prepared for the course and you ought to be allowed in. And then you have to get the, the instructor's permission. That's kind of a soft prerequisite, but you need to know 
how to look for that. You need to know then how to contact the faculty member, which leads me to another whole category, which is how to engage with faculty. That really resonates with me. And I feel like the advising piece is so critical because there's, you know, there's only so much you can do looking in the handbook or listening attentively during orientation. There's always things that are missed. And in my case, in grad school, I had a friend that was a couple of years ahead of me and he told me about petitioning for credit. I had no idea that that even existed. And it turned out that a few classes I had qualified and met the requirements that I'd already taken. So I got, you know, three extra electives. It took me 10 minutes to fill out three forms. You know, that was probably the most productive 10 minutes apart from my first thesis review that, you know, I got really some good critical feedback that put me on a path to where I am today. But next to that, those were perhaps the most useful 15 minutes. And it just, it happened out of a chance encounter talking to a, a better informed peer. So I feel like they can be a source of advice as well, right? There's no question. And a lot of students do look to older peers for that exact kind of advice. And I think that can be useful. I would always check it out with somebody who's actually an employee yeah. of the university, whose word, if you have it in writing, especially, they said, this course qualifies for X. And it turns out they were wrong. Now you've got a case. If a student told you this course qualified for X and it turns out they were wrong, you just got bad advice and you're stuck, yeah. right? Right. So you want, you want to be really careful about that. And, and I, I would just say, you know, always older students can be a great source of, of guidance. There are many schools, in fact, that have peer advisors as part of their advising system. And those students are typically well-trained. And there's right. somebody who is helping them to ensure that they give out advice that's really accurate and useful. But that said, you want to be cautious about taking advice from other students without checking it out on your own with somebody else. Yeah, uh, it sounds like it's one source of information, but don't make it your only one. Compare it with others. So we've talked about advice from advisors. We've talked about figuring things out on your own. We've talked about advice from peers. You mentioned faculty earlier. How can students engage with faculty and learn, you know, learn this hidden curriculum? Well, so there are a number of aspects of this because, you know, students have all had teachers, of course, in, in high mm -hmm. school, but faculty are not just sort of advanced high school teachers. Faculty are doing a lot of other things other than teaching, which is the primary responsibility of, uh, of, of high school teachers. So they're doing research. Many of them are engaged in things related to the governance of the, of the college or university. They're doing advising. They're, they're doing a, a variety of other things. So students have to remember that and be respectful of fact. faculty. The, the one thing you can do to piss off a faculty member really quickly is make some assumption that they're going to be available to you at any time that you happen to write them. So you write them an email message at, you know, at one or two in the morning when you're awake and you don't get a message back the following morning by nine or 10 o'clock because you need some information for that day's class. And, you know, you're not likely to have a message there waiting for you because faculty are not reading their email at one or two in the morning generally. And so, you know, there are expectations that you need to be aware of when you communicate with a faculty member if you know you're going to be missing a class for some reason, mm -hmm. you're traveling for a sport or you're, or you're ill or something else, give your professor the courtesy of an email up front saying, hey, I'm really sorry, I'm not feeling well or I'm traveling. I can't be in class today. I'll do my best to come in during your office hour or talk to another student and find out what I missed or whatever. So that you're taking responsibility for being there. Even if attendance is not part of your grade, 
it's just a courtesy to let your faculty member right. know that if, you, if you're not in class, there's some reason for it. Similarly, if you want a letter of recommendation from them, you know, you, you don't want to ask them, you know, with two days notice, you know, before it's due. You, right. you want to give them, a, you know, two to three weeks of notice because mm -hmm. they're busy doing a lot of other things and they can't just dash this thing off. You want them to write something thoughtful and helpful to you. You know, being professional, being proactive, understanding the full scope of their duties and how they spend their time. Those sound like, you know, table stakes, I think, for building relationships with faculty. But like, how do you go beyond that and use them, you know, to debunk some of these things or to learn these implicit things that are the, the hidden curriculum? What's the best way to tap into all that knowledge right. that faculty have? Right. So again, this, this will vary some depending on the kind of school that it is. Carleton is a small liberal arts college, mm -hmm. 2,000 students, small classes, a lot of interaction between faculty and students. Mm -hmm. you know, Stanford University is, an, is a very large institution, 7,000 undergraduates and a, an equal number of grad students. Faculty are very busy doing their research and working with their graduate students often and so on. So a different culture. But having said that, what I would say is if you have a faculty member that you want to get to know, or you believe that you can develop a relationship with them that will be useful to you, which is perfectly legitimate. You want to use them either for letters of recommendation or for connections to internships or for research opportunities, or just as a person to be a kind of mentor and guide to bounce ideas off of and help you through your, your college years, all of which are legitimate. How would you do that? You would reach out to the faculty member, again, professionally and respectfully, say, can I come in during your office hours? I'd love to have a chance to talk to you about X, Y, or Z. Would you be open to talking to me about your research? Or would you be open to talking to me about opportunities for internships that I'm, I'm thinking about? I'd love to get your advice. Faculty love to be, they wouldn't be doing this job if they didn't love to work with students at, at some level, right? So you can take for granted that they're likely to be receptive if they're approached in the right way. And if they're approached, if you're asking them for things that they can clearly help you with, if you're asking them for things that are really beyond the scope of their responsibility or beyond the scope of their knowledge or expertise, then they're likely to feel imposed upon. So you want to be careful whom you ask and how you ask, but faculty can be a great source of guidance and support. And a lot of times, I found in my experience anyway, that I made connections with students that lasted long after that course was over and I never had them in class again, but we just connected during the course and we would get together for coffee periodically and they would be telling me about what their summer plans were or what their graduate school plans were or whatever. And, and I could be there just as a kind of sympathetic listener and sounding board. And that way of connecting with faculty can be really as important as any of the things that end up on your college transcript when you graduate, the, the courses or the grades, those connections are really, really valuable. Right. The relationships, you know, may be more valuable than the coursework in some cases. You know, if there's one trend I've been observing, it's that things that used to be kind of in addition to a class are getting folded into it, right? So instead of like, Students should go to the career center. You know, colleges are creating a four credit class on career exploration 
So, you know, I love your suggestion of email the professor, go to their office hours, build a relationship. How can they be a, a source on the hidden curriculum in the ordinary course of going to class? Like, are there ways to ask questions or are, are there, you know, how can students sort of leverage the time they're already spending? Right. So what I would say about that is that it, it, it sounds simple, but it's, it's often hard to do. It's one of the tips in, in your book, Elliot. It's actually one of the little pieces in my book as well. It's asking for help. I, I think students very often are a little lost. But if you find yourself in a position where you're not sure, you know, can I collaborate with a fellow student in working on this project or not, right? You want to ask. You just want to make sure to ask. And sometimes students are just very reticent to acknowledge that they don't know or that they feel a little lost or they feel a little confused about something. Or even when they get their work back and they're not sure, why did I get a C on this test or this paper? And they don't even want to go in to find out because they're worried that they're going to sound stupid or the professor who, after all, is an expert on this subject, you know, is, is going to look down on them or think less of them. The, the opposite is actually true. Faculty love it when students ask for help because that's how they learn. And our whole job is helping students learn. So in a way, we want students to come and ask for that kind of help and ask when they don't know the answer to something or when they don't know how to approach something. And so those are elements of the hidden curriculum, but it expands really way beyond just that. I, I would say swallow your pride and go into your professor's office hours when you're having a question and ask for help. And that, by the way, of course, applies also to getting help on your resume from the career center, getting help in your math class from the math skills tutoring center or whatever it might be on your campus, right? There are always resources like that available. You want to find out what they are and take advantage of them. That's not even hidden. That's just right there waiting for yeah. you. But you need, to, you need to be willing to take that step because they're not going to come after you. You know, they're, they're not going to come yeah. looking for you to offer the help. You're going to have to take the initiative to ask for it. I think that's such great advice. And like the rule of thumb or building that habit of like, if you're not sure, ask, I think is so good. That's one of the habits like we've tried to instill in our consulting practice because it's like, if we're ever confused about what we should do next, like that's the time to call the client, right? And figure it out together. And so like building that instinct, like, I'm not sure if I can use this tool or use this source or work with this person. Like that's the time to ask. Absolutely. I think it's such a great rule of thumb or reminder. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for your advice on the hidden curriculum, the rules, the regulations, the relationships. I think these are all things that have such a huge impact on how much students can get out of college. I appreciate your wisdom from your experience, both past and from your current private success coaching. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out elliotfelix.com for all the episodes and the articles I've written, talks I've given, and more information about the book.